This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. But I think I got to warn you that today's going to be challenging because we feature Martin Armstrong, who accolades like the Wall Street Journal is called the highest paid financial advisor in the world. A guy who's been called on by government, sovereign wealth funds, major pools of capital. And the reason's straightforward. His track record has been brilliant for 40 years. Gosh, I remember predicting three years in advance the day of the fall of the Berlin Wall, November 9th, 1989. His Socrates model, you know, predicting way in advance that the last week of January 2020, we would see a major turn in stocks, the economy, society in general, along with predicting that panic would grip the financial markets in the last week of February with a bottom March 23rd. And all of that happened. So today, Martin Armstrong. Plus, we'll talk the Canada Mortgage and Housing's latest real estate predictions and why Aussie Jurek doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. Uh, Victor Dare talks about one key factor in the current stock market slowdown that's not being mentioned. And we got a great quote of the week by controversial Dad Sad. Well, by the way, controversial now seems to mean anything that challenges the prevailing narrative of the day. And in doing so, of course, some people get angry. And don't miss both the Goofy Award and the shocking stat. But first, just before I'm joined by Martin Armstrong, let me sum up what Money Talks is about in 40 words. We talk about the declining confidence in government, the demise of the welfare state, and the financial, at times social, consequences, including impacting currencies, stocks, taxes, bonds, real estate, food, home prices, travel costs, in short, your financial well-being. I think it's a key to understanding, whether you like it or not, whether it makes you comfortable or not, that we are living in a period of declining trust and confidence in government. I mean, there's so many ways to merit, uh, measure it. I mean, obviously, that's what the polls are saying. But we also have social unrest. We've got protests. We've seen the move out of paper currencies into assets like Bitcoin, real estate, collectibles. And the move away from government bonds and into stocks. And that's played a huge role in propelling stocks to record highs. This is the anti-establishment trend. And I guess it's very difficult for many people, including in the mainstream media and certainly in politics, to understand. That's why they were completely blindsided when Donald Trump won in 2016. Blindsided by Brexit, by the Yellow Vest protests in France, by the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. You got victories of brand new political parties in France under Macron and Greece under Syriza. I mean, we witnessed the serious decline in confidence in the media and public institutions like universities. I mean, there are a heck of a lot of reasons. But the point to get is that the trend is driving capital. It's moving money, which moves every financial market. Yeah, and Martin Armstrong is controversial. He is definitely not held hostage by the status quo or the narrative of the day. Gosh, I remember when he was on Money Talks in late October 2016, when, against every poll, his model predicted a Trump victory. And I'll tell you, that was not popular with some people. So let me repeat, before you hear him, he's controversial. But the track record of his Socrates model is undeniable. You know, I first met Marty 40 years ago when he introduced me to the science of modeling. And at that time, Socrates already took into account 33,000 variables, many more now. The key is that Marty understands the interconnected nature of global markets. And maybe that's easier to understand now, given we've just got suffering from a virus from Wuhan, China, impacted the world financially, economic, socially. But come on, it's been obvious for decades. I mean, look at luxury real estate in Vancouver, 
exploded because of the influx of capital from China. And why was capital here? Well, they didn't trust the communist government. So when confidence leaves, so does the money happening right now in Hong Kong. Certainly, the central banks seem to understand the importance of confidence, which is why they spent hundreds of billions of dollars from September 2019 through today in an effort to stabilize credit markets because lenders had lost confidence in the bond market, including government bonds. I mean, everything the central bankers say, by the way, is to restore confidence. That's why they're saying that inflation is transitory. They can't have us acting if we start knowing that, oh, my gosh, inflation's running at 4%. I can go on and on, but I, all I'm saying is, and I will in the future, by the way, in future podcasts, but understanding that confidence and declining confidence is the key to your financial well-being. So we'll monitor when politicians lie or don't walk the walk or when their agenda is more in their interest than the public's. I'll monitor, I'll monitor, uh, monitor everything that erodes the public's confidence with a uh, focus, by the way, in looking at paper currencies and government bonds. And you can keep with me by joining me on mikesmoneytalks.ca. Sign up for the free email blast. Or you can join me on Twitter on Money Talks Tweets or Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks. And I hope that you tell friends and family where to find us at mikesmoneytalks.ca and every other podcast provider, by the way. Because as I've been saying, some might call it a warning. We're living in an era of historic change, including to the monetary system, which is why I'm most interested to hear what Martin Armstrong and his Socrates model have to say. First of all, Marty, thanks for taking time with us. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Mike. So let me just throw a little curveball at you. I want you to follow the research you're doing, and I know you're writing a great deal. You've got a conference happening, uh, you know, the first week of November down in Orlando, which uh, people can sign on to, by the way, virtually or head down there personally, you know, in person. But give us a headline from the future, for example, that you're going to probably be chatting about at, at your conference. Well, I think that we have entered this, I don't know, vortex of, of absolute absurdity, but you have simultaneously deflation and inflation. Now, um, in the economic books, you know, you'll never read about something like that, but this is what's happening. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example. For example, if you're just trying to get somebody to um, paint your house or something, Paint is in such shortage that they can't work. So on the one hand, the, the cost of paint is rising exponentially. But on the other hand, they can't get it, so they're laying people off. Um, so you, you're having this crazy uh, situation of deflation and inflation simultaneously. Um, what we're looking at now is it's it's the time where the financial markets get to vote. So it's it's the the money now internationally votes on who they really have confidence in and who they don't. Um, and those are the movements of capital which can't be rigged. Uh, it's it's way too much. I know a lot of people think you know, there's market manipulations, etc. You can manipulate an individual market within a certain parameter. Uh, granted, you can push gold up or silver or whatever, but you can't change the entire global trend. Uh, I mean, there's not enough money 
you know, in the hands of uh, the most manipulative banks that would could ever possibly do that. So now we are at the stage where uh, we have sovereign debt that's collapsing. For the last 10 years, I've been in meetings back and forth with different politicians, and I've been pushing my solution. And on the opposite side of the table has always been Klaus Schwab. And his solution is, okay, fine. We're we're both saying the same thing in the sense that you can't continue to borrow indefinitely with no intention of ever paying anything back. Um, My solution was basically to um, handle it like a, a corporation that was in trouble and refinance it. All right. So we would take the debt and swap it out for for uh, coupons that you could use for equity. And and government at that stage uh, of ever borrowing again. Schwab basically comes up and just says default on it. Um, <clears throat> create a new currency like this cryptocurrency with this fourth generation that the government can restrict on what we can buy and what we can't, you know, we can sell. And because of the environment, put all these other people out of work and just give them a guaranteed basic income because you're also wiping out the pension funds. Um, most of the pension funds have had uh, restrictions that they had to have government debt. Then you took the interest rate on government debt to negative. It's it's honestly, um, it, it's not that they're devious. They they're just too stupid. <laughs> they don't understand what they're doing, and it's whatever is immediately in front of them. They just do without any consideration for gee, what would happen afterwards? I mean, you lower the interest rates to negative. And, oh, okay, that will stimulate people will borrow. No, they're not going to borrow unless they think there's something to borrow for. You know, and they don't get that. But now you wipe out the pension funds. The ECB has been buying, you know, having to deal with the negative debt since 2014. So this whole economic idea, model, Keynesian, has just completely failed. So it's... It's a very interesting thing. This is the monetary crisis cycle that I've been warning about, and it was coming due in 2021. And that's what all this nonsense is all about. They just can't, they can no longer continue to, to fund the governments as it has been up to now. Well, lots of things coming out of, well, I got a lot of questions after hearing all that, Marty. And, and of course, everybody's wondering, okay, so what is that? How does that translate? So let me just come back to one thing you said. It's all about the capital flow. It's all about where money's going to go when they have confidence. So let me just uh, jump back to the U.S. dollar. That's where money has been flowing. If you look back, your model successfully called that for a huge number of years. You said when crisis hit, when uh, civil unrest hits, it's all going to come to the U.S. dollar. Is that trend nearly over? Because isn't the Federal Reserve like the biggest sort of creator of money and the financing of, what, $6 trillion in spending with a big debate over $3.5 trillion still to come? Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's a fair statement. But, I mean, the Fed has been the least of the problems among some of the central banks. And that's the problem, uh, I would say, that people don't realize is that 
they all pile on the Fed. Oh, this, that, the other. Take a look over the other central banks. Uh, the difference is that the Fed at least has the authority to create the money as it needs it. The ECB does not. The ECB has to go back to Parliament. And so there you, you have to have all these governments agree. And, I mean, it's kind of like the, the chaos you see in Congress right now, which is trying to get politicians to agree with what's going on. Um, but uh, it, the dollar at this stage in the game is still the main reservoir for now. Uh, that may change by 2023. But um, just as I'm in Florida right now and we joke this is the land of the free. If I was up in California or New York, I wouldn't. Um, and <clears throat> last year we had our conference in Orlando. And honestly, we were the only people there. The the hotel was like ready to throw rose petals at our feet, like, thank you for coming, you know. Uh, but it was the only place in the country you could have a conference. I mean, it's, it's just really dramatic. Now, the difference that you have to understand is you go to Europe and Macron or, or Merkel or whatever, whoever's the head of that state can shut down the whole country. Biden can't do that. We have 50 states and they are separate, et cetera. You know, Biden, uh, it was a kind of a joke down here in Florida. He was saying he would you know, send in troops to prevent people from going to Florida. And then uh, our governor said he's going to call out the National Guard to, to protect Floridians against the government. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was just crazy. Uh, but, you know, so that's what we're, we're really looking at. But it's a monetary crisis. I just want you to go a little bit further. Obviously, that's what you're going to be talking about at the conference on November 5th, 6th and 7th down in Orlando. And as I say, available online also. But Tell me more about the monetary crisis. As your model had been predicting coming in, look at 2021. You're now going to start seeing signals uh, much more so in 2022, 23. So what is that? Just give me the nutshell what that means. Well, they're rushing right now, even trying to get some of these cryptocurrency ideas out um, before end of year. Uh, you can go to our site and you'll see I put on the the video of the BIS, um, head of the BI, you know, Bank of International Settlements, saying that they'll be able to control what you're going to do with your currency, what you can buy and what you can sell. I also put on the side the Bank of England coming back to Parliament saying we need more power uh, to restrict what people can do. So, I mean, when they were selling this, you know, they actually set out, oh, this would be a good thing so parents could restrict the money they give their children so they can't buy candy bars. I mean, okay, fine. That's very nice idea. However, if they can do it, so can basically the, every politician. Um, you know, but they sell these things, you know, with flowers around them. You know, that's, that's the real problem. So the, the monetary crisis cycle is effectively trying to change the monetary system, which is what these people are doing. Um, their idea of going to this cryptocurrency, and, and um, I know I, some people disagree with me, but I believe that Bitcoin, etc., was all created by the government. Um, 
and, and just ask yourself this. If somebody really created blockchain uh, and everybody's using it, don't they think they would have gone out and patented and demanded some sort of royalty? It's like this, oh, well, I don't know, some Chinese, Japanese guy did it. It's all very vague. Um, I believe it was created by government for this very purpose. And what they did was, you know, pretty standard. They get it out into the public. Everybody now thinks cryptocurrencies are better than paper. And then at the end of the day, the government comes in and says, okay, fine, it's going to be our cryptocurrency. And then we just seize everybody else's and convert them to ours. Um, but that's the ultimate control. And one of the things in, in meetings I've had really for, I mean, going back 40 years, um, it's always this attitude that they would not have a debt problem if we all paid our taxes. It's never them. It's always us. And I've argued, look, I mean, if, if you collected $10, you'd still spend 20. It doesn't matter. You know, um, what we pay in taxes or whatever, it, it's endless. Uh, they will always continue to spend more. Um, I mean, this budget crisis is coming to a head. Um, I spent like a, a couple hours on the phone the other day uh, with people on both sides of the aisle. All right. And so you now have even conservative Democrats coming up and saying they're not going to vote for three point five trillion dollars. That's crazy. Fifteen percent of the entire national debt in one at one go. Um, you know, and they basically have um, from what I've been told, the cap is that people would want is one point five. So. <clears throat> But this is the monetary crisis cycle. They figure if they eliminate paper money uh, and go to some sort of electronic cryptocurrency, then we all have to pay taxes. Um, you can't hide it anymore. You can't put it in a safety deposit box. This is, you know, they're, they wake up at night thinking, oh, where did you hide the money now? Uh, this is the way it is. Um, and believe me, I have been in meetings and they have slipped. And they have, and some of the really lefties have said it's all their money. They decide on what we're allowed to keep. Uh, that's a crazy idea, but that's some of the way the thinking is. Well, I mean, this is why people are sitting and they're wanting to come to the conference for this. But okay, so what do I do as an individual? So if I'm going to be in a paper currency, I still don't mind having U.S. dollars. But I think there's a big puzzle why gold hasn't moved, as an example, in the environment. And I know it's simplistic to say, gee, the government sort of or the uh, central bank creates a lot of money. The government spends a lot of money, you know, and it's a simplistic relationship to suggest ergo gold must go up because we've got examples when it doesn't. But tell me what you think's happening in gold. Um, well, I know that they have gone after <clears throat> refiners. They have to report every gram where it came from and where it's going. Um, it's kind of like cash to them. So they've attacked the gold markets um, really dramatically. And um, it's, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's in France. I mean, they, the French try to, to deal with gold out of Belgium because they can't deal with it in their own country. Um, there used to be a very big ancient coin show. The biggest around was in Paris. And the government walked in and said, you're going to report everybody that comes in 
to your convention uh, what they bought and what they sold. That was it. And the convention. Um, but this is how they think. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but these people don't look at the implications. They only look at what is in front of them for themselves. And they're destroying the world economy. But they think that they can actually get control of this and then everything will be fine. And it's just not going to happen. Do you think gold will have its time again? Uh, you know, I'm thinking when people lose uh, faith and, and confidence in, say, the U.S. dollar also, maybe U.S. bonds, other bond market, as, as obviously has been happening. But I'm just saying, do you think that will be the sort of trigger for a, a significant rise in gold? Yes, but it, the, the problem with gold, <clears throat> you can't hop on a plane um, and put it in your pocket anymore. There was a woman from Canada who went, uh, flew into San Francisco. She had $30,000 worth of gold and they confiscated. Um, so it, it's, it's what's happening. And it's, they think it's, uh, black market money. And they've used the excuse of funding terrorism and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, six guys in a camel have changed the whole world, you know, but, um, this is really what's going on. It, it's gold. I don't think you're going to see gold as this wonderful free market. Uh, Abraham Lincoln even shut down the gold market during the great uh, civil war because he, gold would go up every time they would lose a battle. And he thought that that was like voting against me. So he shut it down. Um, they shut it down also, you know, during, you know, various periods of war. I mean, Roosevelt, of course, shut it down and, and, um, which wasn't lifted until 1975. But, uh, so they often will attack gold. So you really also have to kind of look at what they won't attack so much. Um, and so you have to kind of look at what it is that they have. And that's usually equities. Uh, and that's why the Dow has risen dramatically. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I kind of, I really should just have it framed up. But in 2010, uh, Barron's did an article and I said, okay, fine, the Dow's going to make new highs. And, and it was, they did an article like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Armstrong saying new highs. And of course, they don't ever come back and say, oh, yeah, well, actually, he was right. But. Um, these are important times and you have to understand most of the ideas of like hyperinflation out of the great depression, they're just flat or outright propaganda. Um, it was December, 1922 when the government, um, the Weimar Republic basically came out and confiscated 10% of everybody's assets and handed them bonds, which they eventually defaulted on, of course. But once they did that, that's what was the, I don't know, the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back. Then after that, nobody did anything anymore. They completely lost all confidence in government. That's when the hyperinflation took place in 1923. So it's, it's 
like the chicken and the egg. You know, these people that often promote gold, oh, they increased the money supply and therefore is inflation. No, the increase in the money supply was because of the first, the collapse in confidence. Then they print money because they had to fund themselves. So it's the opposite. Well, let me come with, uh, for example, uh, the Socrates model. I just remember you were at one of the Outlook conferences. This is going back, uh, you know, five, six years. And at the Outlook conference, you were saying, I think the Dow was about 18,000. You said it's going to cross 23. Then it's going to cross 30. <laughs> and then we're looking at uh, sort of 40. And then, you know, it's, and as you always point out, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you always point out, and of course, it's what we're measuring it in. You know, if we're measuring it in, in uh whatever, Venezuelan Boulevard, the Dow's at a trillion dollar high, you know, so we have to be careful. And I just want to say, but so you've, I mean, Socrates has never wavered in, we're in a long-term bull market. From what I'm hearing here is that bull market will continue. I'm not, I'm, I'm saying broad brush. I mean, obviously you'll get corrections within that, but the broad bull market in stocks will continue. Yes, because it's really the only place to put money also, real estate has been um, basically going off the charts in many, you know, usually outside of the urban centers. Uh, I can tell you that uh, houses down here in Florida, since everybody's been leaving New York and California, uh, I would say they have tripled within just the last two years. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's quite, you know, amazing. I know somebody that um, just bought a house um, for like two and a half million dollars. And I thought it was, that was really excessive, but it would cost you more to build it. So, um, and then a house just two doors away, just sold for 3.2 in a matter of six months. Um, so it, it's, it's very interesting what's happening, but the inflation for, and the, Shortage of supply, uh, like lumber going up and things, has risen so much that the cost to replace some of these houses is far more than what you can actually just buy the house. Yeah, we've seen that in Canada. What was different is usually the strength in the housing market, maybe Toronto, Vancouver, you know, typical story, uh, you know, post-pandemic when they had record low interest rates manipulated by the central banks, we've seen strength right across the country, like every market, you know, obviously to some degree, but it's all double digits and more. So we've had a similar uh, phenomena here, but that brings me to this other side, which is very important. I know you've warned about owning government bonds, and, and I certainly talk about that a lot, but I think the question is, central banks have been manipulating interest rates. And they've been doing it by buying government bonds, you know, at record low rates, creating money, buying the government bond. Can they do that forever? I mean, how long does that party last? Well, sure, they can actually continue it because um, there's no private, you know, sector that's buying it anymore. That's kind of like what's happening in Europe. But <clears throat> it's important to understand that the, the interest rates are split. If you look in some of the third world countries, interest rates are now starting to rise, even at the central banks. Why? Because they are at a different position than we see in Canada, U.S., in Europe. Their central banks can't continue to just borrow, you know, uh, buy in, in debt. So 
the actual interest rates that you're seeing, uh, for example, mortgage rates have declined. Why? Mainly because investors are looking at that as the alternative to a 30-year bond. I'd rather have a mortgage where at least I have something tangible, whereas a, a government bond offers zero. Uh, one of our clients is, is one of the very big hedge, uh, uh, I would say, um, pension funds. They looked at what I was saying. They did their own analysis and they started dumping government bonds as much as they could. And <clears throat> S&P walked in and said, gee, you're taking on more risk. And they said, no, look, we follow Armstrong. We double checked. Uh, what he's saying, and he's right. The people that default are government, not the private sector. If the government defaults, you get absolutely nothing. You can't go down to the National Gallery and start lifting Picasso's. You know, <laughs> um, whereas if a a private sector defaults, I mean General Motors or something like that, then all the assets are sold, or at least you get something back. You get zero back from a government default. So the smart money is beginning to realize that. So they are moving into uh, corporate mortgage. Mortgages have been okay. Uh, and, and the corporate bonds and equities. So it's what you're seeing in Canada. I mean, you don't have a free press anymore. So uh, that is really the capital starting to shift because they don't trust Trudeau, et cetera. All right, so what do you do? Well, <clears throat> go into the real estate. Uh, real estate is a very, very big uh, asset class for, for capital to hide in. And uh, equities is the other one because equities are a little bit better in the sense that you can at least hop on a plane and, and sell your IBM shares in, in Shanghai or something. Um, well, you can't do that with, with real estate. Well, let me come to something you also uh, you alluded to just a few minutes ago, but it's been a theme, and uh, and that is we were going to get supply shortages. And you talked about rising prices in agriculturals when we talked to you about that at the World Outlook Conference and before that also. But you said look for the commodity the agriculturals to go, look for shortages in commodities. All of that has transpired, and the question is, are we still? Uh, in a commodity bull market, like, is that over or is that still a place to be? Maybe buy on dips, that kind of, and I know it's a broad question, but just the concept. Yeah. And I mean, the, the commodity cycle is going to continue. Uh, we have, uh, honestly, you know, it, I'm not being political, but Biden is, is, I think he's just a puppet anyhow, but uh, the people pulling the strings, or, or just have this agenda in their mind. They have absolutely zero experience. I mean, here you go, okay, fine, I'm for climate change, blah, blah, blah. So he immediately starts, takes office and, and shuts down drilling and things of this nature. Gasoline then starts going up and go, oh, gee, that's bad because it's politically not good for me. So then he turns to OPEC and asks them to, to start increasing production. The same thing in Germany, you know, oh, yeah, the Russians are they're going to have this with the pipeline, etc. Then all of a sudden there's a shortage in gas and, and they go back to Russia and say, gee, could you possibly give us some more? <laughs> um, 
I mean, there is no, uh, I don't know, there's just no expertise. Uh, I mean, these people are, are amazing, but I mean, you take Bill Gates, he's not a, he dropped out of, of college. He doesn't have a degree in medicine or anything else. You know, so why is he suddenly the our health czar of the world? You know, um, it, it's just absurd. It's kind of like, you know, making, you know, Jeffrey Epstein the head of a monastery or something. Um, it's just, you know, we we put people in these offices that have no expertise on anything that they do. Um, most of them are just lawyers. And this is what we get. I mean, it's a complete disaster. And I mean, as you know, I've, I've dealt a lot with, with, <clears throat> uh, governments and I was even asked to, you know, to even work in the White House back then, uh, under Bush Jr. And I said no, but <clears throat> usually what it is is that the president stands between all these agencies. Okay. So he makes the final decision. So these agencies, have since Bush Jr. They've wanted, they didn't like being told no, like a two-year-old. So they go, you know, okay, mom says no, I'm going to go to dad, see what he says. Um, and so they, their dream has been have a president that's not really a president. He's an absentee uh, guy and they can do what they want. They don't have to, you know, need permission for everything. This is what Afghanistan um, the crisis was about. Uh, it's you had all these agencies doing whatever. They nobody coordinated anything. There wasn't anybody there with rational thought to even come up with it. Um, I mean, I can tell you, they did not like Trump because Trump actually thought being president meant I was in charge of something. Um, when I, when he was first elected, and I went down to Washington. They, they thought it was a fluke. And I heard the same stories that when Ronald Reagan was elected, because he was a governor. All right. They don't like people from outside of Washington. So when Reagan was elected, it was like, oh, we're going to have to train them. When <clears throat> Trump was elected, the same thing was coming out. Oh, we're going to have to train them. Uh, they don't like people from outside. Uh, they really don't. It's like you're playing in their sandbox and don't mess it up. So that's what we're really kind of looking at. It's just a real mess. Don't expect anything from government that's going to be coherent. Um, there's no great plan. They don't know what they're doing. And it's r- really running the entire world by the seat of its pants. Well, that's a perfect lead into me saying, okay, I want to be able to sum up what people should be doing. And again, I'll say, uh, obviously, you're going to be spending three days on this in Orlando, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, uh, you know, coming up, uh, I think November 5th, 6th and 7th. Uh, and again, people can do online, but, uh, but give me the nutshell in this. So what I'm hearing is this is I don't want to own government bonds. Uh, I don't mind my real estate. I mean, there are other variables. This is very broad strokes. I'm speaking here. Uh, gold's time hasn't come yet. Be careful in the cryptocurrency space because if it does uh, too well, the government's going to take over anyways. And we've seen that in China. 
I mean, we've just seen it. They've yeah. introduced the digital one and, uh, gee, presto, all of a sudden crypto's outlawed other than the digital Chinese currency. So, I mean, it's not like we don't have hints of this coming through, which makes it difficult. I mean, there's still a debate how it develops, how it happens, over what time frame, that kind of thing. Um, and I still, uh, I'm still comfortable being in stocks. Uh, is that about right? And I should be a borrower, by the way, too. Well, if you can borrow at low interest rates. Yes, at low. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the stocks are still in a position where we can get a near-term correction. All right. That may prove to be a buying opportunity. Um, we'll take a look at that at the conference. But uh, you have to understand that, you know, what China has done with the crypto is exactly what they are planning to do in the West. All right. So, uh just be careful on that because they will decide whatever conversion rate. If you got Bitcoin, oh, here you go. This is what you'll get with in hours. Uh, it, they're, they're able to track absolutely everything. And the other thing with crypto and, and why I thought blockchain was really a, maybe a plot that they created. If I give you a hundred dollar bill, they can see that I gave you a hundred. They don't know where I got the hundred from. With crypto, they can see where that hundred came from for me all the way back. That's what they like. That's what what makes them lick their lips. Um, so I don't. You know, my problem with it is that you know it's they're going to create a a. I would say you're going to see a a, a black market develop. Uh, <clears throat> silver coins will be good. Uh, let's in, I got to finish with a couple things that I, I, I didn't go over specifically uh, just because it's in the news. So I, I promise to let you go. But just give me two minutes on oil. Um, again, the Socrates forecast was this uh, supply shortages, oil and gas it resulting in much higher prices. Um, is this going to continue? Yes. I mean, you have to also understand that <clears throat> right, you, you, these people have gone off and try to restrict the production of fossil fuels and say, oh, we're going to be, you know, alternative. But the alternatives, you know, electric car, it's not here. Okay. You're, you're talking about 2030 to 32. I mean, uh, good luck if you're, if you're down here in Florida and there's a hurricane and you got an electric car, when you want to try and get away, further you're going to get is 200 miles. That's it. Then you're going to be hitchhiking. Uh, so the, there isn't enough of a power grid to handle this. You know, so forget the, the nice thing. We're saving the planet. And we're not saving the planet. Uh, it, it, the, the question is they have, this is like dumb and dumber, really. You cut the supply of those things first, long before you have an alternative. Um, I mean, California has cut off uh new buildings with natural gas, which is one of the cleanest burning things. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's just insane. It really is insane. It's, it's the most terrible mismanagement I've ever seen. I mean, okay, fine. You cut the fossil fuels when you've already created the grid. All right. But you're doing it backwards. So uh, I don't know if they understand because it, it when biden kind of panicked and went to the 
uh, OECD because gasoline rates were going up too much. So that tends to make me think they didn't understand what they were doing. Um, but normally what would happen in a free market is that the alternatives come in when the price of oil goes up and they've suddenly become cheaper. Uh, when oil is down, they are more expensive. So you're not going to get the economy to shift. Uh, so it's got to move in that direction. And the way these people have, have handled the fossil fuels, uh, it's, it's really completely backwards. So, uh, yes, you have, uh, the, you still have the risk of oil and gas and things of this nature actually rising. Uh, because you also have shortages at this stage in the game um, on just about everything. And, of course, the implications are everywhere. And, again, that's a good flavor of what you're going to be talking about at the uh, 2021 conference down in Orlando, and it's November 5th to 7th. That's what I want to let people know. I'm going to call it the full Marty instead of the full Monty. The full Marty down in uh in uh, Orlando or online. Marty, I want to say thanks so much. Uh, by the way, you weren't that cheerful. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm going to be thinking, like I've done well in my stocks as Socrates it says it still points higher. There is corrections, but still points higher. So uh, at, at any rate, but it's important to understand what the broad picture is in the context of which we're living and investing. And you've done a great job. Thanks so much for taking the time. Well, thank you. But also on the, on that note, if I say, here's my fist, I'm going to punch you in the face. Here it comes. <clears throat> do you just let me punch you in your face or do you move or block? I mean, it's best to know what is coming. Yes, it's not so optimistic. Okay. Uh, but we're in this period of time where government is just collapsing. And that's what we have to deal with. As long as we know it, we understand it. We're not surprised. We don't get punched in the face and we can still survive for another day. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. I couldn't agree more with that. Martin Armstrong, you can find him at armstrongeconomics.com. He posts every day. It's free, armstrongeconomics.com. Uh, you can belong to Socrates, and it only starts at $14 a month, but so, you can find it there, everything you can find. Uh, event details at Orlando, armstrongeconomics.com. Time now for the quote of the week. Gad Saad is a professor of marketing, holder of Concordia University Research Chair in Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences and Darwinian Consumption. He's also advisory fellow at the Center for Inquiry. Gosh, I looked at his YouTube channel. He has millions of views. In recent year, though, he's coming to the spotlight and being controversial by arguing that political correctness is limiting the free exchange of ideas on university campuses across the continent. Which brings me to my quote of the week regarding not just the demise of free inquiry at university, but of society as a whole. In quotes, close your eyes and imagine this scenario. A child is taught that his country is racist, imperialist, evil, bigoted. The same child is also taught that science is white supremacy and that we must decolonize knowledge. He's also taught that capitalism is rape. He's also taught that fixed binaries defining biological sex is antiquated science. He's also taught that national borders are racist. He's taught that meritocracy is white supremacy. He's also taught that my truth is more important than the truth. And that's only day one of kindergarten. Now repeat this lesson all the way to his PhD in intersectional feminist epistemology at Wellesley. 
and produce millions of such indoctrinated individuals that then assume leading roles in academia, politics, journalism, the media, uh, Hollywood, high tech, etc. This is how a society implodes. This is how a civilization crumbles. It doesn't happen overnight. It may take 50, 100, 150 years, end of quote. I smiled yesterday when I saw the Federal Reserve saying that the transitory period for inflation is a little longer than they thought. (laughs) My goodness, the Roman Empire was transitory by their measure because we've seen an increase in price. Uh, Costco bumping up their prices, the Dollar Tree saying they're going over a dollar. It's all part of a much bigger problem. And we've been talking about it with Michael Levy, and I'm going to bring him in now uh, to talk about the shipping problem. Uh, Difficulty finding truckers, by the way, that's exacerbating the energy problem coming out of Europe. But I want to talk specifically and bring it back to Canada here, Mike. Uh, Sort of saw a note that you had sent me earlier in the week. I said, let's talk about this when you said Vancouver sending empty shipping containers to Asia. I think that's a bit of a shocker. Why don't you explain that? Well, just wrap your mind around this, Mike. The fact is containers come in from Asia. They sit here in Vancouver or they go out. They get loaded. They get loaded with grain. They get loaded with potash. They go back on container ships and go back to Asia. The port of Vancouver right now is sending back record numbers of empty shipping containers to Asia, not even waiting for them to be filled up and shipped back to China, let's say, but sending them back empty, sending them back just huge numbers in order to put merchandise on them, to get that merchandise back to Canada and the U.S., particularly on the shelves with the busy Christmas season coming up. Well, we've been hearing about this is that all of a sudden it's saying, be careful because people, uh, you know, retailers are ordering stock right now. They don't get it delivered December 20th. You know, they get it in the stores. Well, as we all know, we complain Christmas starts too soon, but they, excuse me, they should be starting to get it in the stores soon. So uh, this is amazing though, that they're sending, give me an idea of the magnitude. Like, what are we talking like? A hundred thousand containers going back empty? What? Well, just to give you an idea, as you say, of the magnitude to the problem, there were the equivalent of 597,443 20-foot containers. That's the kind we see on cargo ships that are in the harbor, the kind we see on trains being moved around. Empty containers exported from Vancouver alone in the first eight months of this year. That was up just about 90% over last year. So picture it, merchandise coming in, Empty containers going out, more than half the containers leaving Vancouver this year have been empty. It's just just mind-blowing. I mean, but we have heard, uh, you know, the problem coming out of Asia, that's boosting prices because shipping prices are up astronomically. They'd be dreaming of the day it's only 100% drunk. It's it's somewhere in the neighborhood of as much as, uh, you know, from a $2,000 for a container, you've, I'm hearing stories as much as $20,000, for example. You know, yeah. it varies because it depends what, what port we're talking about, what country we're talking about. But the one thing that's consistent is that the price of a container has gone up just dramatically, which, of course, those prices gets passed on. And that's what Costco was talking about. Absolutely. And the situation is so dire, Mike, that two of the nation's largest retailers, Walmart and Home mm-hmm. Depot, are chartering their own ships to retrieve their products while Amazon is beefing up their car, their fleet of cargo planes and the likes of Walmart and Target are also, are also 
air freighting stuff in mm. instead of bringing a ship. Now, can you imagine the cost difference? You don't have to imagine it. Just go into the stores yeah. and see what's going on. Yeah, good point. And, uh, and, I, I, sorry, go ahead, Mike. Oh, and, and the other thing is just, again, to show the magnitude, the time the time that it takes to ship an item from Asia to the U.S. and Canada has roughly doubled this year, 15 days by air. We say air is overnight, 15 days to secure it and get it on freighters. And by sea, 90 days during the pandemic. So you've got a three-month turnaround there. Mike, that's huge, and that is so impacting. Inventory in stores for Christmas, getting it here on time, and the price people are price people are going to have to pay. And that's the big deal. I mean, this is part of that inflation debate, of course. We've seen prices edge up. I guess we can expect more. But, uh, hey, that reminds me, the last few weeks, you've been the good humor man. Thank you for putting a frown on my face today, Mike. Well, I just had to change things around. You know, Christmas is getting closer, Mike. We've got to be realistic here. Yeah, there you go. Michael Levy. One of the things I'm, I'm most proud of that we've done on Money Talks is talking about the coming commodity boom. We actually had a conference on it in February 220 before it really started, but we started talking about it about five months earlier. And as uh, you heard from Martin Armstrong, he thinks it's going to continue. I wanted to get right down to the ground level, though, right now and talk to Claudia Tornquist, who's the CEO of Kodiak Copper. Uh, Claudia, can I just ask you, give me the broad view of you thinking of the, the sort of the, the, the top line view of the copper market at this point in terms of uh, consumption, production, that kind of stuff. Well, my view on copper is very positive. In my mind, there's no doubt that we're in for a sustained period of high, high copper prices. And why is that? We have, of course, the demand side, and the demand primarily is driven by the green revolution. All these green technologies, all the electrification, whether it's electric cars, solar, wind, all these industries are very copper intensive, much more so than the industries they replace. And obviously, these are very fast growing industries. And that means there's a big, big, big um, demand on the horizon for copper. And then if you look at the other side of the equation, at the supply side, that picture is quite stark. The development pipeline in copper is at an all-time low at the moment. There have only been four major discoveries over the last decade, simply because commodity prices have been weak for an extended period of time, and so not much exploration happened. And the result we have now that there are just not many mines being built, not many discoveries have been made, and pair that with a lot of demand. And yeah, there will be a crunch. Goldman Sachs predicts 8 million tons of, of gap, supply demand gap, in a market that's not even 25 million tons in total. Uh, give me an, just, uh, sorry, a ran, not a random question, it's related, but how long does it take, and I know I'm asking a generality, you know, but how long does it take to get a copper mine? If, if you and I had an idea, we said, okay, let's discover some copper. We got lucky and we did. How long do you get to increase, to get into production? I mean, just give me a ballpark. Well, copper mines are very often large, big elephant mines. Some um, 30% of copper production is from 10 big mines. 
So consequently, it takes time to bring a project to fruition and to build a mine. And you're looking at 10 years plus from discovery to when you actually have a producing copper mine. Wow. So, I mean, and we know renewable demand is going to be there, you know, as we transition. So, I mean, that just, it just shows you the degree to which it's going to be very difficult for the supply to meet the demand, you know, if we, as we do this transition in this place. Again, let me give, ask you a couple of questions about Kodiak, because again, it's sort of like the on the ground kind of stuff. So you're out there, you guys are exploring right now, you're drilling kind of things. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, Kodiak's main project is the, the MPD project in southern BC, where we made a discovery that was a real game changer for the company last year. And this year have a large drill program going, 30,000 meters, up to 30,000 meters, so a very active year. And it's certainly been a challenging year for many companies out there with wildfires and drought and all. But we're fortunate, um, program advancing well. We are on budget and motoring ahead. And um, we'll still be drilling for another um, one or two months until um, late this autumn. What What's the environment like to raise capital? Uh, you know, I would think that, uh, as you described at the outset, and something that we've been big, um, you know, fans of is the demand side. Uh, has that made it easier to raise money for projects? Well, we are fortunate in that we are fully funded for the current mm -hmm. work. Last year, on the back of our discovery, just about a year ago, we raised $12.7 million. So that funds all our work this year and well into next year. And I would say in general, at the moment, this is a good place to be because the markets have been very challenging for junior explorers, not just us. Our share price has held up reasonably well still, but um, it's just been very difficult. Uh, markets and share prices are low. So at these levels, I would certainly not uh, want to raise any money. But yeah, I mean, we have lots of news coming and the market will hopefully um, improve and uh, we'll take it from there. The other thing is a Canadian business or, you know, doing business in Canada. Uh, you know, we just had, of course, uh, a reconciliation day on September 30th. Are you working with First Nations and what that what's that like? Is That's part of the new reality of doing projects, as you say, you're in southern B.C.? That's a very good way of, of putting it, new reality. Because in the, in the olden days, miners would just go wherever they wanted to build their mine, not really um, uh, talk to local communities. And we've seen many instances where that really backfired. So really today, um, the approach is very different. And the whole sort of First Nations and stakeholders, local stakeholder relations, that's a very important part of an explorer's work. In our case, we consult extensively, even though we're still very early stage, with all the First Nations in the area. Um, in our area in southern BC, there are 21 First Nations whom we keep informed, have meetings with, get um, their input. And it's very important to build these relationships early on and shape the, pro the project in, in um, a collaborative way so as to not run into problems later on. 
And that's very much what we're doing. And it's a very constructive relationship. The First Nations in our area in particular, which is a, a mining area, they really understand their stuff. They are very much in favor and know the economic benefits from a mine and just want it done properly so that the negative impacts on the environment are minimized. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, th this is a broad question. Maybe you're not allowed to answer it. Is BC an easy place or Canada in general an easy place to do projects like Kodiaks? I would say it's easier than many. Mm -hmm. It can sometimes be a bit slow and bureaucratic of mm -hmm. permitting and those things. But on the other hand, um, it's very much an established process. And the, also the First Nations, um, they um, have been involved for a long time and they, um, they know um, mining and they know the consultation process. So it's very well um, established process and you just have to go through the steps and do it right. And then you can advance with your project and your mine. It's a fascinating area. It's a metal I love because of what we've been discussing, but it's also a real challenge for all levels of government, as you say, relations with First Nations companies, because we can't afford a 10-year cycle to open up a mine. You know what I mean? If we truly want to do the transition, that's a reality, at least generally in the public, hasn't been acknowledged. So I'm happy to hear things are going well for Kodiak Copper in that regard. And we do appreciate you finding time for us, Claudia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to you. CEO of Kodiak Copper, Kodiak Copper. Time now for this week's shocking stat. I mean, we talked about it with Martin Armstrong, but arguably the biggest economic story in the world right now is energy shortages in China, where blackouts, factory shortages are the result of insufficient supply, with Bloomberg reporting that the central communist government has, in quotes, ordered the country's top state-owned energy companies to secure supplies for this winter at all costs, end of quote. In the UK, gasoline shortages, power outages, also factory shutdowns. I mean, the fear in Europe is of a cold winter and energy prices skyrocketing. I mean, the government's an implored coal producers to enhance production. You've got natural gas prices up like 500%. Electricity prices in the UK at a 12-year high. In Canada, well, we know this. Gasoline prices up 32.5% in August compared to a year ago. West Texas crude is up 100% from this time last year. Natural gas is about 180% in North America. Uh, coal prices vary around the world, but it's up everywhere in some places like 250%. I mean, those price increases are shocking, but also will be the sticker shock as much as those increases are going to be passed along to us as consumers. As you would expect, there are lots of variables involved, but it comes down to not enough supply to meet the demand as the global economy opens up. North America, the heat dome, remember in the summer, well, that increased electricity demand, which meant less storage. Uh, for example, in Canada, natural gas storage is at a five-year low. And uh, so a severe winter is going to increase demand, push prices higher. In the UK, they had a big failure of wind power because there was abnormal drop in wind in the North Sea. Well, that created a storage problem for the government in terms of energy. And they've been imploring coal producers to increase supply. I mean, other things are in play, like trucking shortages and shipping bottlenecks. By the way, Europe has the added problem because coal and nuclear have been decommissioned. So there's no backup power in many places. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week from the International Energy Agency. In 2019, the com last complete year of data, 81% of the world's energy supply still came from fossil fuels. 
And here's the shock. Even if all nations were to fulfill their current climate promises, and that's not a good bet, the International Energy Agency estimates that fossil fuels would still make up 73% of the world's energy needs by 2040. In other words, oil and gas aren't going anywhere. And a lack of investment in the new production, as I was talking about with Martin Armstrong, is going to continue to put upward pressure on prices. Well, CMHC was at it again this week. I mean, they've been a lot of fun during the pandemic, especially with their prognostications, forecasts about what's happening in real estate. But this one is a little confusing, saying that Vancouver is the least vulnerable market and they went back east for the most vulnerable markets. I got to bring in Ozzy Jurek to help make sense of this, maybe get a little feel for what's going on on the ground. Ozzy, I know you saw the report, but come on, that is puzzling. People look at the record high prices in Vancouver and go, what? Isn't, isn't debt the big problem here? You know, isn't that where the vulnerability comes? Well, yes, of course, uh, CMHC has a, has a sparkling record. I mean, first of all, it's good to have an organization that ensures our mortgages that probably makes us for much more uh, stable uh, mortgage market. But they come out with these dramatic forecasts. Uh, two years ago, uh, you and I talked on the radio about they're forecasting an 18% decline in real estate. They said that the mortgages would be in default when really what they meant was that the for that the uh, the, the ability to uh, stop payments for six months would come to an end and so on. Well, now they came out this week and they said that, well, the housing market is far beyond what's warranted by the development of uh, the activities and the prices. And the crazy thing is that they're, they're saying that uh, they have these ratios of moderate, uh, medium, and to dramatically high. And I felt that high was Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Moncton, and Halifax, whereas uh, Edmonton and Calgary would be medium, as well as Victoria. But Vancouver was the only city there where the risk was low. And, Michael, that is, is really unbelievable because, let's face it, I understand why they're saying it. They say we have a lot of um, volume maybe declining, but we also have listings declining. So people are rushing out, and, and double, multiple offers are back. We had uh, one of our guys, Brent Roberts, he had a uh, deal with 24 offers uh, to close. So the market is very hot because of, there's no product. But that, to me, is much more, much more dangerous than some of the other markets that were mentioned. Yeah. And, and as I say, I mean, I'm always like, let's manage our risk here. So I'm always looking at, uh, you know, the, as you say, the supply side, but I'm looking at what the price and what the size of mortgages are and that kind of thing. And I think it's a market that's been primarily driven by record low mortgage rates, you know, have got people up. But when you see like an average home price of $1.8 million in greater Vancouver, I would think I would think that's where the risk is. Yeah, it's actually 1.92. And then oh. you rate. The new new numbers that are coming out this weekend, I would I would think that we have seen an increase in volume, a decrease in listings again, and the market will continue like that for a while. So we live in an interesting times. The inflation is very visible. It isn't just in the shipping containers. It 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 is anybody goes shopping in my Ozbuzz. I I have a common bear index. And the common bears double where it was uh, three years ago. Anybody going shopping knows that inflation is far more dramatic than the 2% official, well, now 4% admitted to the rates. And uh, so we think that, that, that the pressure is going to continue. 
as I say, it's uh, to me, it's all about where the mortgage rates are. I mean, obviously, there's other factors. It's it's you don't want to oversight. I don't want to oversimplify to that degree. But the number one driving factor has been these record low mortgage rates. You know, in the states, for example, you still got the Federal Reserve buying about thirty billion a month worth of mortgage-backed securities. So that's what I'm watching. I mean, for me, Ozzy, I look at that five-year bond rate, for example. If it starts going up with some significance, that will bump up mortgage rates. Then I'll have a look at activity. No question. And you know, everybody thinks well, rates are low, and the government can keep rates low. But the mortgage rates actually tie to the bond rates. And if the bond rates rise, where the 10-year went up almost a, a 0.4% uh, this week, uh, the black swan is higher interest rates. And while everybody is forecasting them to stay low, and while it's logical to think that governments don't want to rate rates because the costs are going to go up, maybe they have, won't have a choice. Maybe they'll be forced to, to raise rates. And that, to me, is the black swan that could really hurt us in the housing market. Well, we'll be here to chronicle it, but I want to say just one more thing. And by the way, I should have mentioned it uh, with Michael Levy, uh, that, that Michael and uh, Robert Levy and Border Gold have been major supporters of Special Olympics no matter what, and so is Ozzy Jurek. Uh, you bring your friends in. You are the best polar plunge partner I could have imagined. Uh, but there again, we had our tournament uh, this past Wednesday uh, in Vancouver for uh, Special Olympics BC. And, the entire, and by the way, it was a dreadful day. It could be worse. We had worse, but it could be. It was not the most pleasant day. I don't think there was a soul who would have played golf and woke up that morning going, let's go out and play golf because it could be it could be cold and rainy. And it was cold and rainy. But I just want people to know that Ozzy has been with us uh, nonstop. Uh, you know, our whole Money Talks team with uh, with Grant Longhurst and Nina Parente just did an absolutely fabulous job supporting. And I, I bring that up for a few reasons. But one is. Uh, and, and many, you know, our whole Money Talks team, look at Victor doing the uh, golf tournament at Oceanside in Parksville uh, and also been there for years, as you have, Ozzy. Um, and I just think this is the best part of Canada. We hear an awful lot about what's wrong with Canada. This is the best part. Uh, we talk about being inclusive. Well, I'll tell you, people with intellectual disabilities are not included far too often, are not top of mind. Government do not take them into account. And they didn't. I could give several incidences, but I don't want to go too far into the negative. I want to be the positive. All the people who came out and supported Special O, uh, as I say, on Wednesday, and it wasn't a pleasant day, but including Ozzy and his friends. And the highlight for me was that Ozzy didn't hit a spectator. That is, you know, we had the sigh of relief throughout the course was unbelievable when he arrived back at the clubhouse. Yeah, well, and I want you to remember something, Mike. Uh, The sex and golf, are the only things in life that you can enjoy without being good at it. Um, oh, uh, what did you I know? Say? How do you know that? <laughs> Wait, I know you're not that good a golfer, but come on. Let's okay. Let's leave it there on a family show. Ozzy, have a great weekend. Go to ozbuzz.ca. So much to talk about. Interesting stuff Martin Armstrong brought up, but I want to get Victor Adair's take as we go live to the trading desk. Vic, I want to start with stocks. I mean, we are down from the September highs. Looks like NASDAQ's suffering a little bit more. Give us your take on what's going on in the stock market. I think, Mike, what it is, is uh, the stock market was overdue for a correction. You know, we were up over 100% from where we were at the lows of last year. Uh, We've had massive retail capital flowing into the stock market. You've seen all kinds of, call it um, runaway speculation, whether it's in meme stocks or different markets, you know, baseball cards, you've referenced that things have been bid up. These are signs of a market that's maybe a little frothy. And, you know, we've corrected, let's, let's call it five to six percent. 
It's not as though, you know, the, the market tumbled to zero. And in particular, it, the, the market's not monolithic anymore. I mean, the Dow Jones is one thing. The Nasdaq is something else. And then we get the small caps and so on. But one of the things I think we've really seen here with the in, particularly longer term interest rates increasing the, the last two weeks is there's been a rotation in the stock market. In, in a really general way, <clears throat> we've gone from money being heavily invested in big cap tech, let's call that uh, growth stocks, and now we're seeing value uh, catch up on that. The, the, the big cap tech stocks were extra tied or extra vulnerable to what long-term interest rates were doing. So as bond prices uh, dropped here, interest rates went up. We had this rotation where capital was going from one thing to another, a term you've used before. You've called it the inside of the stock market. Well, that's a Stanley Druckenmiller term. So you know what I'm talking about there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point you're bringing up. People have to understand it isn't monolithic in the same way it was. We are seeing uh, we have some sharp corrections in some decent stocks, you know, quality stocks, and you've got others not uh, faring as poorly. So I think that's a great point to make. But I want to jump also to the energy sector. Um, man, have we I talked about that in the shocking stat, of course, but still, it's it's got to be maybe the story of the week when people are starting to notice uh, shortages in the UK, China, especially when you've got factory shutdowns and them saying, hey, why don't you go out and get some uh, some energy for storage and pay whatever you need to? I mean, that has an impact on the market for sure. Well, to put a level on it, I mean, natural gas prices in uh, the UK and in Europe are five times what they were a year ago. And and the, the the increase has really taken off here the last couple of months. There are gasoline shortages at the pump, and that's gasoline as opposed uh, different from natural gas. That where you know the people in England are wondering if they go down to the gas station if you can get gas in your car. You know that that's worrying. Now, the big jump in that gas has pushed up the price of electricity. So energy costs throughout Europe are high. And again, it goes, you were referencing earlier about, you know, the supply shortages and that sort of thing, the, the supply chains breaking down. That's certainly part of it. China has had rolling blackouts, rolling brownouts. Just yesterday or what was it, Thursday, I guess, the government there said to the suppliers, it doesn't matter what you have to pay. Just go get the stuff. We don't want to have any more of this. So we are seeing the energy complex prices are, are strong, and that fits the drifts through, I guess, to the broad commodity indices with energy prices up. Broad commodity markets are, you know, we're basically at seven-year highs here on the leading indices. Uh, let me come back to interest rates. I think what you, sorry, I should have said that's a very key what you're saying because I want to come back to interest rates because as you said, you're starting to see bond yields sort of bump up. And uh, again, the ripple effect could be in stocks, uh, uh, you know, into uh, obviously the bond market. So it's important. Well, as I said, uh, two of the main drivers to the stock market have been uh, easy monetary policy and government stimulus. Easy monetary policy. Here's one way to express it. I mean, we know that the Fed has been buying $120 billion worth of paper every month. That's bonds and stocks. But you go around the world and you add up all the key central banks. The number is $300 billion a month. Now, the banks around the world, particularly the Fed, are showing signs of they want to start to back away from this. Well, if they're going to back away, 
who's going to buy the bonds? You know, so I think that's what the bond market is looking at. They see a, a never ending supply of debt coming. Somebody's got to buy it. So they're marking the prices down. What are you going to be watching for? What are, what's on your radar uh, to finish off here? Well, well, the U.S. dollar hit a one-year high this week. That's pretty important to me. Uh, I think maybe uh, I, I've actually position I've got on right now. I'm I'm long of the Australian dollar. Um, you know, I'm always kind of skeptical when the market uh, sentiment gets too strong one way or the other. The speculators in the Australian dollar are absolutely the most short they've ever been. And I say, okay, you know, I'm willing to take a bet against that. You know, they're, they're seeing just horrible relationships between Australia and China, for instance. So that's one thing I'm watching. And I think maybe, uh, very short term, the, the, the pressure on the stock market is probably a little overdone and maybe we get a little bit more of a bounce. I was short stocks this week. I covered, uh, actually, Mike, I covered because I need to go traveling. I went and picked a puppy. You know, and uh, I didn't want to have the market on my mind while I was doing that. So right now uh, I'm looking for Australia to maybe have a bounce. Canada might also. And uh, I think the stock market sell off here. The, the strength of it might um, we might get a bit of a reversal going into the first of October, the first week of October. Well, we'll keep a close eye. You'll be busy with a new puppy, but we'll be watching VictorAdare.ca, VictorAdare.ca. Thanks again, Vic. We'll talk next week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. A week ago, we heard the glorious news. It was after the show that after a thousand plus days, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavar were being released after being held hostage in solitary confinement in windowless cells. Of course, their release came hours after Ming Wanzhou had signed a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S., which was always available to her, by the way, and in which she admitted most of what she was accused of, but she was on a plane to Canada Presto, the two Michaels were released. In the aftermath of the release, Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau said Canada's eyes are wide open. You know what? That reminded me of former ambassador to China, John McCallum. He stated this four years ago in September 2017. In quotes, we want to pursue stronger ties with China, but with our eyes wide open. I mean, Foreign Affairs Minister, really, our eyes wide open with the release of the two Michaels? Is that what it took? Because that's goofy. Not the clear warnings of CSIS, though, not the Canadian military, along with the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that China is the principal threat to Canada's national security. They got espionage, foreign influence. They just interceded in our election and interfered. We got cyber threats. Are you kidding? But now our eyes are wide open. Not the genocide of the Uyghurs, not the breaking of the Hong Kong, one country, two systems, international agreement and the immediate arrest of all the pro-democracy advocates, suspension of other civil liberties, that wasn't an eye-opener? Or the COVID lies and the destroying of pandemic-related evidence? Or not the documented threats by communists against Canadian citizens? 120 tips daily the RCMP gets alleging clandestine activities by the Communist Party agents in Canada. None of them were eye-opening? Really? The biggest human rights abuser on the planet? planet? And it took the release of two Canadian hostage to open the Liberal government's eyes? Wow. I'll just say this. Our partners in the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, well, they've sure known. But then again, maybe that's why the UK, US, Australia didn't even discuss their latest security agreement with Canada. It's more like everyone else knew about Chinese threat to Canada. Maybe that's why we're the only ones to have not banned Huawei from building Canada's 5G network 
given, I mean, really, the, by Chinese law, Huawei is in quotes, must support, assist, and cooperate with the state intelligence work. The Pentagon lists Huawei as the top 20 companies owned by the Chinese military, but we're still not so sure. As top journalist Terry Glavin states, no matter how far the relationship with communist China drags Canada away from its traditional allies and five eyes intelligence partners, Ottawa's singular focus has been on avoiding hard questions, keeping quiet, hoping nobody notices. So are our eyes finally open to what China's about? Did it really take the release of two Canadian hostages to see the Chinese communist government for the authoritarian, untrustworthy human rights abuser that it is? I guess we'll see. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to hold my breath. That's all the time we have this week, but I got to finish with this again. A big thank you to everyone who supported us at the Special Olympics Golf Tournament. All my friends at High Performance, the various people like Michael Levy, Ozzy Jurek, Victor Dare, my regulars, but Andrew Rulin, uh, so many other people, Eamon Piercy, who's been one of the, Joseph, uh, Joseph Schachter. I mean, the list is a long one, and the list includes all of the people who took the time to donate auction items, took the time to bid on the auction, because I'll tell you this, you're making a difference to a group that is largely or overlooked, and they have been overlooked during the pandemic. You can't come up with one thing that tells me where they separated the health concerns regarding people with intellectual disabilities and did anything uh, to address that, given that those people are eight times more likely to suffer a severe reaction, and it's because of comorbidities. But my point is, this is the good part about Canada, when people take a moment, think about others, and in this case, help support us with Special Olympics. So my sincere thanks. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.